The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, we are in Acts chapter 16, and I'm glad to be back uh, here with you guys and sharing. For those of you who might be new here or may not know me, I am just one of the elders here. It's my privilege to bring to you uh, the Word of God. My name is Jeremy. Uh, as we dive into Acts, it's important, I think, to, to kind of get context, to understand where we are at in the story, the unfolding story of the book of Acts. And so I want to just kind of reorient us just a little bit. In Acts chapter 16, this is immediately after the council that took place at Jerusalem. You see, in the early church, there was this debate. There was, uh, there was an understanding that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. But they didn't expect, those that got saved initially, those that were from the house of Israel, they didn't expect that the gospel would spread to the Gentiles. But God, in his sovereignty, spread the gospel to the Gentiles without their permission. (laughs) Because he's good like that. And so the gospel goes out, and Gentiles start getting saved, and they're like, well, I mean, to be... To be saved, don't you have to become a Jew before you become a Christian? Like, isn't there like a process here? Uh, and, and they're worried about, you know, keeping the commands and, and, and a lot of things that have to do with the Old Testament. And, uh, and so they, have, they meet together, they have this council to try and, and understand exactly how is it that God has brought in the Gentiles? And, and how, exactly, how exactly are they saved? And, and what does it mean to have fellowship when, when somebody is from a, a Jewish heritage... And somebody is not from a Jewish heritage, but they they come under the same messianic king and kingdom of Jesus. What does that look like? How how do we honor the heritage and and yet at the same time not place a a binding um, set of rules upon people who are not from that heritage? And what what part does salvation play in that? Well, the ultimate decision comes down that they are... Uh, unanimous, that God saved apart from any keeping of the law, any cir- sign of circumcision, which was the, the sign that you were part of God's covenant people. And as a result of that, the, the council of Jerusalem says, hey, we need to send out a letter that, that really makes official the fact that God saves by faith in Christ alone, and that's it. That, that the gospel is really that simple. We want to make sure that's, that gets protected and preserved. And so we're going to send out an official letter from the church in Jerusalem to make sure that all the churches understand that this is the reality that God saves by faith alone, through Christ alone. Now, immediately, Paul and Barnabas and a couple of representatives from Jerusalem head back to Antioch, this church that is birthed a few hundred miles north of Jerusalem to bring the news and the letter from this council. And when they arrived, they're received with a a great amount of joy. I think everybody was super thrilled to hear that they didn't have to be circumcised in order to become Christians. It was, it was a big moment for the Gentile church. They're like, praise the Lord. You know, they were excited about this movement. And as time went on, Paul and Barnabas, who had already gone and had established churches on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, 
they come to the conclusion that it's time maybe to get out and bring this good news out to those Gentile churches, the places where God had started churches throughout the region. Now, we're going to dive in. We're going to take a look at these missionaries as they take off from Antioch. And what happens, you'll see that there's a separation between Paul and Barnabas there and a reorganizing of the teams and and the structure of that. Um, But before we dive in there, I think that it's also important to kind of provide some context for the entirety of the book of Acts. I, I, I got a question for you. Why did God give us the Holy Spirit? Why did God give us the Holy Spirit? Now, there, it seems, I think, fairly obvious, although I, you would be surprised at how many different answers you get. Uh, throughout the church, for example, we can see some people that it, it, it's definitely their opinion that the point of having the Holy Spirit is to have like supernatural experiences. That, that really the goal of having the Holy Spirit in some way is to encounter d- the divine in some way and, and experience some supernatural essence of who God is. And, and I can understand that because when you read through the book of Acts, you see a lot of miracles that are, that are happening. When you look at the life of Jesus and you see him being led by the Holy Spirit, you recognize that there's a lot of things that are happening there that are supernatural. And I understand people's desire to see those things. I want to see those things. I would love to do a hospital visit where somebody just died and have God raise them up from the dead. I think that would be awesome. I would love to see people get healed. Now, in my lifetime, have I seen many miracles? I've seen maybe a few. And even those, my rational mind is like, eh, maybe. Right? But is that the point? Is that why God gave us the Holy Spirit? Now, we know that the Holy Spirit gives us lots of uh, support. He seals us for the day of redemption. We know that the Holy Spirit empowers us and gives us strength. But, but, but to what end? I, I would like for you to turn right back to the, the first, keep a thumb here in, in Acts 16. Turn back to the very first chapter in the book of Acts. And let's take a look at verse 8 of chapter 1. This is Jesus talking here. If you have a red letter Bible, these, these words should be in red. The disciples are asking Jesus, okay, so, like, when's your kingdom coming? When is all this going to happen? We're hoping that, like, you cast off the Roman oppressors and, you know, like, we, we would see this kingdom come in reality. And, and Jesus' response to them in verse 7 is, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. You don't get to know when the kingdom will finally be fully established. You don't get to know that. You're in the, it's already here but not yet phase, Right? But, he says, but, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The arrival of the Holy Spirit seems to be for one specific purpose. What is that? that we might be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. That we might be empowered to represent God to the utter 
most parts of the earth. God gave us the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. In fact, there are some scholars who say that the entire book of Acts should not be called the Acts of the Apostles, but rather it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because all throughout the book of Acts, you see the work of the Holy Spirit continuing to push God's agenda, God's mission, God's desire to save and to to engage the world in a climate where people weren't expecting it. They didn't even really want it. (laughs) But God is coming to them by the power of the Holy Spirit and continuing to push his mission forward. So today we're going to see the ways in which God leads Paul and his team on their second missionary journey. And from the very beginning of this endeavor, we're going to see that that God is in control regardless of opposition that they face or that they will encounter, regardless of their human weaknesses, regardless of spiritual warfare, regardless of hardship, that God has a mission and he's continuing to push that mission forward regardless of anything else. God had a mission, has a mission that he cares about and will see accomplished. So we're going to dive into Acts chapter 16 and see how it is that the Holy Spirit works in spite of us. So coming back to Acts 16, we'll back up just a few verses to, to get context of Paul and Barnabas being sent out. In verse 36, after some days... Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia. So we're going to see some ways in which God leads by the Holy Spirit. The very first thing that we're going to see here is that the Spirit leads through leadership and planning. I want you to look at verse 36. It says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So there was this idea. The idea caused a meeting. The meeting was had between two capable ministry leaders. And they decided, yeah, that's a good idea. We should go ahead and do it. And that's how it happened. (laughs) It's not any more complex than that. The Holy Spirit worked in the heart of leaders to care about the churches that were spread abroad. It doesn't say that that Paul was caught up in a moment of devotions where the divine being came down, descended upon him in the form of a flaming bonfire of love, and, and all of a sudden his heart erupted with a giant need to go and see the None of that happened. Paul was sitting there, and he's like, you know what would be kind of cool? Remember five years ago when we went and planted all those churches? It would be neat to see what God's done with them. 
It'd be cool, like, if we, if we brought this letter that we had from the, the council at Jerusalem, and, and we brought it to them, and we, we helped sharpen and shape their understanding of the gospel even further. I, I think that would be cool. So he goes to Barnabas. He says, hey, Barnabas, what do you think about this? And they decide to go. Real simply, the leaders of this movement loved the people that were working in, that were in these churches and wanted to see how they were doing. The Spirit was working through the Jerusalem Council, and the Spirit was working through the leadership of Paul and Barnabas, and through their natural desires, the desires of their heart to care for people. You see, God puts it into the heart of church leaders to care for the flock. God puts it into the hearts of church leaders to care for the flock. They, they sit down together and they make a plan for how to care for the flock. Then they execute that plan. They accept all the responsibility that comes with the execution of that plan and the result of making that plan. And for the most part, if you think about it, on a day like today, most of you will leave this place and you might think about your church in order to pray for it. Uh, you might think about your leaders in order to maybe send them a harassing text or a, a, you know, a, an email that lets them know just what you thought of their sermon on Sunday. That might be the only thought that you give to what happens here on a weekly basis. But, but for the people whom God has called to lead... And to care for the flock, it, it, their whole thought and attention is focused on how to equip people, how to encourage. They consider the ways in which the body needs spiritual growth. They ponder the up-and-coming week and how best to care for the flock through prayer. They consider the preaching of the word they consider personal touches and how they might do those things. God has raised up men and women in our church who can't stop thinking about the church. Their spare moments of time and energy are concerned with how to make disciples and how to care for the sick and how to strengthen marriages and how to encourage the health of families and how to protect from false doctrine and how to help new people feel welcome and, and feel connected and how to equip those who are serving and, and how to educate people biblically. Like that is their thought all the time. How do we do this better? How do we strengthen and encourage? And, and the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, that God gave these people to the church as gifts to the church. That he sovereignly, as an act of his Holy Spirit, put into the hearts of some people the desire to care for the church and take ownership of the church in that way. Take responsibility for the church in that way. And no, nobody else is, is thinking about how to disciple and how to care for. I, I want to be thinking about that. And God puts that on their hearts. I think this is why the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. In other words... If I could just give you the, 
the King Jeremy version, <laughs> right? Uh, don't make their job suck. <laughs> don't make it hard. Like the, the people that are here, the people that are leading, do so at great sacrifice to themselves for the good of the body. And they do it simply because they love Jesus and they love the church. Don't make their job miserable. Don't make it difficult for them to do that. The Bible's just so clear about that, so plain about that. It's like, hey, listen. The Holy Spirit is working through leadership. And you say, well, <laughs> he might be working through some leaders out there in the ether, out on the Internet. I've seen him on YouTube. He's working in some of those leaders, but our leaders... I don't know about those guys. They've got all kinds of flaws. I know, Jeremy. That guy, was, he barely graduated high school. He was a drug addict until he was 19. Trust his leadership? I know those elders. I know that group of people. I know those ladies. Why, why would I trust them? What you will find out is that when God calls people to leadership... He also equips and guides and steers them. And we'll see that actually as this story unfolds because Paul and Barnabas are going to have a sharp disagreement. There's division. And that sharp disagreement leads to them separating as a team. And there's this, this very painful division that takes place. But God is still working through them as leaders. So, the Holy Spirit leads through leadership. Second of all, the Holy Spirit leads through differences and conflict. We read here how an argument breaks out about the use of John Mark on this missionary endeavor. As they, they haven't even hit the ground. They're not even on the trail to go and visit these churches. And there's, there's an argument that breaks out. In chapter 13 of the book of Acts, we learn that John Mark at some point departed from their first missionary journey. He, he just went home. And, and as theologians are wont to do, they, they all argue about the reasons why. Some said that uh, John Mark was a mama's boy and he just wanted to go home. Others protested that the, the shift in leadership from his uncle Barnabas to Paul uh, may have contributed to his, his disgruntledness and his need to, to depart and go home. Still others say it was an illness, like malaria, or that it was Paul's zeal for, for preaching to the Gentiles that was such an offense to him. Uh, but the truth is, we, we really don't know. We don't get a whole lot of details. We just know at some point he left, and it, it was hard on the rest of the team because they were depending on him. And he wasn't there when they needed him. Now, we don't know the real reasons why, but what I can tell you is the experience that I've had on virtually every mission trip I've ever been on has been pretty similar. It usually starts like this. For instance, a few weeks ago, we made our way to Uganda with a team of people here from Heritage. And on the way there, it's exciting. Oh, man, you're like anticipating what's coming. 
right? And you're like, oh, I'm going to go to Uganda. We're going to see the Holy Spirit work. Revival's going to break out. The whole world will be saved. It's going to be amazing. And you're excited. You're filled with faith. You're confident that God is moving. You're out on this new adventure. You're going to someplace new to encounter a different culture, to see new people, and to learn something different. And then you've got 48 straight hours of flying. That's where you land in Entebbe, and then you've got another six hours of driving. And all of a sudden, the gloriousness of mission work begins to fade a little. Now, I won't mention any names from the team, but there were a few who were disgruntled, even though they deeply loved Jesus even though they want to see the gospel work, even though they were totally thrilled and excited to see what God would do in Uganda. It's uncomfortable. The travel's hard. Now, the travel's hard for people like us who fly in airplanes and drive in cars. And we're like, oh, I had to sit for so long. (laughs) This was hard missionary work. They literally hiked across mountains to get to other cities. They literally got beaten with rods and had rocks thrown at them. It was hard work. And I have a feeling, I mean, if, I'm, if I could just throw in my theological two cents, right? I have a feeling John Mark just said, hey, this is kind of lame. I don't think this is fun. <laughs> I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> right? He just was like, I'm, I'm done with this. After being on the road for a long season, being away from the comforts of home and familiarity, missionary work is just flat uncomfortable. So for whatever the, the reason is, John Mark left, and this caused a huge problem for the team. And as they discuss going out again, Barnabas, Uncle Barney, wants to take John Mark with him again. Paul's like, uh-uh, no way. He left us high and dry. Why would we take him again? He's just going to wimp out again. I'm not taking a gimp with me on this very important mission to go and share the gospel. Like, why am I going to do that? What's interesting here is that as this conflict breaks out, and by the way, the Bible says that it was a sharp conflict, a sharp disagreement. It was heated. It was explosive. I have no doubt, given Paul's personality, tones were elevated. Words were thrown. And this very first missionary team is locked in full-on conflict interpersonal conflict that is difficult because they have two different visions of what God wants to do. Now, what is interesting here is that you can see the giftings and personalities of each of them come into play here. Barnabas. First of all, Barnabas's name was a nickname, Barnabas. Uh, it means son of consolation or son of comfort or encourager. Paul, on the other hand, uh, is is a, a, a driven type A personality. You see that from the very get-go. Matter of fact, before Paul was even saved, 
When he was in Judaism, he's just like so driven as a personality that he's like, I'm going to learn everything that there is to learn. I'm going to be super efficient. I'm going to be a, 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 a Pharisee among Pharisees. I'm going to be the most strict of all the people who've ever been. So you see, he's got like that heart, like mission first type A mindset. Barnabas, on the other hand, is an encourager. He's like, we're just going to write John Mark off like that? Like he's a throwaway human? How do we do that? That's not the Lord. That's not what Jesus would do. He didn't throw Peter away. Paul's like, but the mission is so much more important. We've got to bring the gospel. We've got to visit these churches. and this, We can't be weighed down. We, we have to depend on each other when we're on the road. Like this isn't going to work. Barnabas is focused on people. Paul is focused on mission. Barnabas has a heart to see restoration. Paul has a heart to be focused and undistracted in the gospel. So the question is, who is right in this argument? The answer is, they both are. And who's wrong in this argument? The answer, they both are. (laughs) They're both right and they're both wrong. Kent Hughes, I think, says it best in his commentary on the matter. He says, our judgment goes with Paul, but our hearts go with Barnabas. The truth is, this event surely wounded both men. Barnabas lost the companionship of his friend Paul as a result of this separation, and with it, one of the most effective missionaries that God ever sent into the world. And Paul may have lost the friendship of Barnabas, who was the very one who was responsible for getting Paul into the ministry in Antioch to begin with. Remember, it was Barnabas who went and sought Paul out and brought him down. Yet God is not hindered by the disagreement, nor is the gospel limited through their fleshliness, through their mortality. Instead, God uses Barnabas to care for John Mark. And God uses Paul to care for the churches. And instead of sending one team that would go out in one direction, he sends two teams that go out in two separate directions. Paul and Silas go by land, and Barnabas and John Mark go by sea. Two by land and two by sea. God gets twice the work done in spite of of the conflict. You see, sometimes the Holy Spirit leads through peaceable circumstances when things are easy, but sometimes he leads through difficulty. This team, apart from this this division that took place, would have continued to labor together and God would have continued to use it. But in the face of division and in the face of conflict, Both people still had a heart to please Jesus, and God used the division on both sides. I think it's really wonderful to see how effective the Holy Spirit is in doing this, because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, we read that Paul writes at the end of his life, he says, hey, 
Timothy, when you come to me, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm about to die here. I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. I'm about to depart. I've run the race. I've finished the course. I've been faithful to the end. He says, when you come, though, hey, bring, bring John Mark with you because he's useful to me in the ministry. I love this. I love this because we see in this that God used Barnabas to restore John Mark to such a place that at the end of Paul's life, Paul looks back and goes, hey, John Mark is useful to me in the ministry. That was directly related to the work that Barnabas did in caring for him. So the Holy Spirit would use Barnabas to restore John Mark to the ministry so effectively that Paul calls for him at the end of his life. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads in the differences, and sometimes he leads in the absence of conflicts. Other times he leads in the presence of conflict. The presence of conflict. If we wait for all the circumstances of life to to be absolutely aligned and perfect to where something is free of controversy and free of conflict, we will never step forward in doing God's will. So sometimes God in his grace leads by the Holy Spirit, not in the absence of conflict, but in the presence of it. Now, as a side note, sometimes people view the church and its leadership in a way that is unhealthy. They want everything to look polished and clean. The sanitariness of, of, of this environment, I think, gives them a sense of security. You know, it's like everything is clean here and perfect. We don't see any problems. And, and so I feel safe here as a consequence of that. It provides the illusion that everything that God does lacks mess. But can I just ask you a question? Where have you ever encountered a lack of mess in the things that God does? Is it that way in marriage? How about parenting? That's something that God does. Does it lack messiness? Does it lack conflict? You see, in, in everything that God does, God works through the mess to shape his will in our lives. And it's through the mess of ministry and the church that God works in spite of our weaknesses and in spite of our fleshliness. And I would say this, for those of you who maybe are in a season where marriage is a struggle, if I could just encourage you at anything, this is, that, that's where people just jump ship. Like, it's not supposed to be this hard. Who said that? If you're supposed to love Christ, love your bride like Christ loves the church, how hard was it for Jesus to do that? It was difficult. It required a lot of suffering. I don't know who... Who sold us this bill of goods? Maybe it was the Enlightenment. Maybe it was like this whole like romantic philosophy that's been sort of pushed on us that, that marriage is supposed to be this super fulfilling thing that, that always makes us always feel good all the time, every day, till we die. That's hogwash. <laughs> marriage is God's tool to shape us and make us 
into the image of his son Jesus. It's to teach us about unconditional love and to shape our hearts for his glory. That means at some points, it's not going to be an absence of mess that shapes you, but the presence of it that shapes you. Well, we're almost to chapter 16. Good news. (laughs) I've only got seven more points to get through. So buckle up. So, Paul and Silas head north by land. Barnabas and John Mark head across the sea to the island of Cyprus. And so now we start to follow Paul and Silas. So Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So remember, Paul had already been through this area, and, um, and now he comes to this area again, and, and he sees the, the son and grandson of some people he's already encountered on, a, on the previous missionary journey. This young man, Timothy. Now, Timothy, five years have passed, and there's been an aging process, but Timothy's been being discipled by his, his grandmother and his mother. His grandmother, uh, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, are named in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 as being the ones who trained Timothy in the Scriptures and, and, and caused him to know the Word of God effectively. So by the time Paul gets there, Timothy is already ready to go out and be a missionary alongside of him. I'm sure there's still shaping and discipling that's going to happen along the way, but he has a base of knowledge that Paul looks at, and he's got a reputation with the people around him within the church. Paul looks at him and says, man, this guy is useful to me in the ministry. And so, Paul takes him. Now, his father was an unbeliever but his, and, and a Greek, but his mother and grandmother were Jews and were believers in Jesus as the Messiah. So, verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, so quick, quick thing. In Paul's hand is a letter that says you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. But now, Timothy is the victim, I mean, willing participant, <laughs> of the sign of circumcision. Now, I don't know how that conversation happened or what kind of salesmanship it took on Paul's part. But Timothy, as a grown young man, consents to this ceremonial operation for the sake of the gospel. (laughs) You know, sometimes the Spirit leads through leadership, and sometimes he leads through conflict. But there's also times where he leads through intention and sacrifice. That is, Paul and Timothy looked at the glory of the gospel and God's power to save, and they said, we don't want to cause any 
any roadblocks. And, and right now, there's a, this Jewish audience that, that, because of rabbinic tradition, that says that, that because his mom was Jewish, that he is a Jew, but if he's uncircumcised, he's behaving like his Gentile, unbelieving father. This is like this roadblock to where they won't even be able to bring in this letter and have it heard or listened to in a way that will, that, that will jive with them. Because they say, you have an agenda. You just don't want people to have to be circumcised. You just want to destroy our traditions. But when two circumcised people come and hand a letter that says you don't need to be circumcised, they both honor the traditions and uphold the gospel. Paul says, I have become all things to all men. He would write to the Corinthians. And through his partnership with Timothy and Timothy's willingness to suffer immensely for the sake of the gospel. Paul and Timothy continue to bring the good news of the gospel to the churches at large. So as a matter of missionary strategy, Paul removes the offense in order to make preaching the gospel in these places easier. It would be a sign of respect to Jewish, Timothy's Jewish heritage and yet also a sign of unity to the, church, to the churches that are wrestling with what to do about the mixture of both Jew and Gentiles within the church. So that when they hand off a copy of this letter from the Jerusalem Council, they hand it off with representation that they still respect Jewish customs, but with no question about the clarity of the gospel. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads through intentionally targeting those who need the gospel. In the process, we may be called upon to sacrificially build bridges. The Holy Spirit is moving. He brings Timothy into this team. Paul sees the calling on Timothy's life and the equipping that God has already invested through Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother. And, and now, as a result of this, Paul says, hey, you come along, but we, it's going to require some pain. It's going to require some sacrifice because we, we, we don't want the gospel to be hindered in, in any way. And Timothy, because of his love for Jesus... And his desire to see the gospel have its way consents to that. That's amazing. What an amazing heart for Jesus. I could see why Paul loves Timothy so much. He goes on to call Timothy his own son in the faith. The Holy Spirit does not always ask us to do what we want to do. In fact, Sometimes a good indication of the leading of the Holy Spirit is when you feel prompted to do something for the glory of God that is counterintuitive to your flesh. I can remember at one time, I was down here in Medford, I was working as a landscaper, and I felt prompted by God to go and share the gospel while I'm working with this guy across the street who's muttering to himself. And I'm, I'm like... Maybe it's, maybe it's the Lord. <laughs> I don't know. It could be the Lord. And so I'm debating. While I'm debating, he's over there muttering, which only causes me to debate even more. <laughs> Can he really understand the gospel? And what is the situation I'm getting into? And is this really the Lord? And while I'm sitting there, I'm like, I don't know, God. This could be you. This could not be you. And I look over, and he's gone. He just disappeared. Immediately, I felt convicted. I'm like, you idiot. (laughs) 
that was your opportunity. God was probably going to save him. Why didn't you go and do this? Maybe there will be a miraculous healing and he'll be delivered from a demon just like in the book of Acts. Like, why didn't you go and do this? And immediately I'm like, my flesh didn't want to do that. That should have been an indicator to me that that was something that God wanted me to do. So I crawled back in the hole that I was digging in, landscaping there. And I prayed, I said, God, if you bring that man around, I will not fail to share with him the gospel. And I took one scoop and I lifted the shovel up and as I looked up, that guy was walking straight towards me. So I get out of the hole and I grab my shovel and I'm like, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? He immediately started running down the street. But I made a vow to Jesus. So I have my shovel and I'm chasing him down the street back towards Bricktown to go and share with him the gospel. Finally, he dodges. There's like a little copier place at the time right there next to Bricktown Brewing. And he jumps into the copier place, but I got a shovel and mud all over my boots and I don't want to go into the business. So I just stand outside with my shovel. Just wait for him to come out. Eventually, he comes out and he's like, what do you want? I'm like, I want to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> uh, listen, a good indicator that Jesus is leading is sometimes he leads us to do things contrary to our flesh. And that's exactly what happens here. Paul leads Timothy to do something that was contrary to what would make sense to him physically, what would be comfortable for him. So, they take off. As they went their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. In verses 6 through 8, we see that God, that the Holy Spirit leads through closed and open doors. And then when they went through the, reg the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So, uh, if I could just pull up the map here just real quick. Here you can see Paul's and Silas's missionary journey. They head north up through Syria, um, or excuse me, up, yeah, up through Cilicia, uh, over across through Derby, Lystra, Pisidia, Antioch, Phrygia, and then all the way over to Troas. Now, somewhere in that area where you see Phrygia, the word Phrygia, uh, they had determined they were going to head south, but then that doesn't happen. So then they thought, well, we'll head north, but then that also doesn't happen, and so they make their way over to Troas. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what it exactly was that hindered them, there is the possibility that, that Paul got really sick at this point because uh, we, we see here that some of the language changes in verse 10 where Luke, the author of the book of Acts, actually joins into uh, the, the, the story here and he starts to use the, the phrase we, uh, as in Luke, me, the author, I was there with the apostles when this was happening. And Luke, we know, was a physician. And so it's possible that Paul sought uh, help from a, a physician to be able to go and, um, and, and get healed and get better. 
but the Bible doesn't make clear to us exactly what had happened. We just, we just know that they were hindered in some way by the Holy Spirit. And guys, sometimes God leads through a closed door. They wanted to go do this, and they couldn't. The Holy Spirit said no. And so they said, okay, well, then we'll go do this. And the Holy Spirit said no. <laughs> I said, all right, well, then we'll go over here and we'll do this. God doesn't always lead through open doors. Sometimes he leads through closed doors. Instead of a yes, you get a no. That is the leading of God. By the way, just as Americans, I just have to say this. Uh, no is not a word that we like. A lot of times we'll ask God something that we're pretty confident he's going to say yes to. <laughs> and his no is a surprise to us. Like, Lord, move me to this, or God, give me this thing, or Lord, I want to have children of my own, or God, heal this disease, or God, restore this marriage, and the answer is no. And it's painful. But I'm going to just encourage you, that's every bit as much God's will being accomplished as as a yes. God is still working. In the words of the famous theologian Garth Brooks, (laughs) some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. There was a guy in the Old Testament by the name of Hezekiah who was a king. He was told prophetically that he was going to die. And he didn't like that. And so instead of saying, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, he said, no, my kingdom come, my will be done. I want what I want. Save my life. Don't kill me. God answered his prayer. And while he was alive and continued to live, he fathered one of the worst kings in Israel's history who led the nation astray into idolatry and is part of the reason that judgment came upon them. He would have been better off dead. I say that to say, when we pray, Jesus taught us to pray like this. Father, let your will be done here on earth in the same way that it's being done in heaven. I surrender myself to your will. Well, he leads not only through open doors, but also through closed doors. The Holy Spirit leads through the natural and the supernatural in verses 9 through 10. Paul has this vision. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. So, supernatural event. uh, Paul has a vision of what it is that uh, the Lord wants him to do. He's in Troas. He couldn't go north, couldn't go south. And so God says to him, uh, I want you to go over to, to Macedonia through this vision of a man calling him to Macedonia. Paul shares that vision with the council of friends that he has with him. And they say, oh, well, we couldn't go north. We couldn't go south. And here we are at this port city of Troas, and there's a boat that leads right over to Macedonia. Maybe we should get on that boat. Part of the the leading of the Holy Spirit was that God used a supernatural vision, and then the Bible says that they concluded 
right? They thought about all the circumstances that had come their way, and they said, okay, God prevented us from going here, prevented us from going here. Now we're here, and there's a boat that goes to here, and we had this vision. They added up all of the circumstances. They used their brains to listen to the Holy Spirit and to obey him, and they went. Now, God uses the Holy Spirit to lead both in supernatural and natural prompting. prompting. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will lead us in supernatural vision. Other times he will lead us also by our natural ability to look at our circumstances and figure things out. We are not going to get through the entire text today. So, I want to close with, with one thing here that I think is is really important, and that is the story of Lydia, and we'll pick up again next week and run through this and the other 65 verses of the next chapter. Um, God also leads by the Holy Spirit through the expected and the unexpected, verses 11 through 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed to be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the, from the city of Thyatira. And she was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Paul is given this vision of a Macedonian man, saying, come on over here. But when he gets there, he's expecting a Macedonian man. Now, rabbinic tradition said that if there were ten men in a city, that you had to build a synagogue. There were apparently not ten believing Jews in that city. There was only women. Not even ten men who would leave, but these women gathered together by the river faithfully. Paul goes expecting to see a man, but when he gets there, what does he see? A women's prayer group. And he shares. And Lydia, who is this wealthy person, apparently a widow, she probably inherited her husband's business. She's wealthy, has a nice place. She gets saved, hears the gospel, her whole household gets saved. As a consequence of that. And in the lack of male leadership, Lydia opens up her home to the church. And she becomes the host of the first church in Philippi. She uses her resources and her influence in a powerful way. Hey, quick side note we're a complementarian church. That means that we believe that God has made men and women to complement each other in the labor for the kingdom. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is a lot of times in church culture you hear that women uh, are supposed to just like stay home and raise kids, rear children, and they shouldn't be like in the marketplace. They should be, you know, a good woman is a woman who, who needs to be seen and not heard. That kind of a mentality, you hear that stuff out there in the world, which my wife right now is like, you better shut your mouth. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> because not all women are the same, and some women have great gifting at home and others have great gifting in the marketplace 
That's just the reality of it. God's given them specific gifts. And some women are made to be married, and some women are made to not be married for the glory of God and to not have families for the glory of God. God uses Lois and Eunice to raise up Timothy. And God uses Lydia to raise up a church. Hey, when we were in Uganda, if you could pull up this picture, I'd like to introduce you to somebody. This is Elvita. Elvita lives in the furthest, like, mountain range. You have to take a rock. We, we genuinely, we got a pop tire because the road is so rocky on our way back from this place. We drove forever and a day up into the mountains, and right on the top of a mountain is this church that is built there, and there are no men who, who, will, who will lead it. But Elvita stands up every Sunday morning and faithfully shares the word of God with the people in that village. She's discipling her grandkids and has her family there with her. And she, in the absence of male leadership, has stepped into that place and is loving that people. Can you, can you go to the next slide real quick? This is the inside of the church. It's a dirt floor, adobe walls. She's got parachute kind of hiding the mud on the walls. But see that blue tarp? That's the part that I want you to see. I want to show you what's behind that tarp. Go ahead and go to the next slide. It's a little bit hard to see in the lighting here, but that, that's her bedroom behind that tarp. Elvita's home is where the church is. She's, open, she's opened her life up to such a, a, a place that she said, if I have to live behind a tarp in the corner of the church on the top of a mountain in the middle of Uganda so that the gospel can come to this village, that is what I will do. She reminds me so much of Lydia. Women, if I could encourage you in something, the Holy Spirit uses you in powerful, powerful ways. God used Lois and Eunice to raise up Timothy, and God used Lydia to house the church. Ladies, we are so grateful for your faithfulness to God. You inspire us to want to be better leaders in our homes, and fathers to our children, and leaders within the church. We treasure you. We, we see your discipline in studying the scriptures how week after week. Three studies a week, the ladies get together and go through the scriptures to them. They pour over the They do this thing called write the word, where they, where they write out all the scriptures in the Bible. That's amazing. Ladies, you make us want to be better men. Keep pressing in to the Lord. We need your voice. We need your influence. We need your spirituality. And we're thankful to the body of Christ and the part that you occupy in it. Something else to consider here as we close this out. Even though this was not what Paul expected, the Holy Spirit was leading Paul and leading Silas and leading this team with Timothy to come to this place and to find not just men, but women who were there leading and doing the will of God. You know, hospitality is one of those things that the Bible talks about often. And, and, and our willingness to let your household be a place where God is honored is an important gift 
to the church. And I just want to encourage you guys as we kind of close this out here. That maybe perhaps one of the things that the Holy Spirit might be leading you to do today is to say, God, I want you to not just be honored with my words and in the singing of praises and the songs that are lifted up or in my tithe. But God, be honored in my life. I open up my home. I open up my heart. I open up my family to you. God, would you just use me? Get your work done through any of the resources that I have at your disposal. Be honored and be glorified through my life. Holy Spirit, lead me. And I want to just invite you, real quick, before we close out, would you just pray that prayer, just real simply, before we dive into worship, would you ask the Lord, say, God, how do you want to lead me by the Holy Spirit? Because you gave me the Holy Spirit, not just for warm fuzzies and cool emotional experiences. You gave me the Holy Spirit that I might be a missionary like Elvita, like Paul, like Timothy, like Lois, like Eunice. That I might bring the gospel to the othermost parts of the earth. Would you invite him to lead you? Just pray to him right now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that even right now there are those here who are being reminded of their usefulness to your kingdom. As you lay opportunities before them, God, as you work in the lives of the people at Heritage, may we be a group of people who don't just teach about the Holy Spirit or talk about the Holy Spirit, but who are led by the Holy Spirit who surrender ourselves to you and honor you with our lives. God, would you have your way in us. Bring about a fresh wave, a fresh movement in our hearts as we make ourselves available to you. There are some here, God, who have not felt the presence of the Holy Spirit in a long time. And and it's possible, God, that they haven't felt that because they've not been available to allow the Holy Spirit to work. So God, as they loosen the grip on whatever holds them back, meet them by the Holy Spirit. Draw them into deeper obedience and surrender to you and be honored and glorified in our lives. And I ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus.